Welcome to the $7 Trillion Ideas to Save the World podcast. I'm your host, Nika Moini. I'm a master's in international affairs student in international economic policy with a focus on development financing at Carleton University. I'm also a community leader, advocate of youth entrepreneurship, and author of Careers in International Relations, Generation Z's Guide to Global Citizenship. You may have found this podcast through your interest in development finance, or just ideas to make the world a better place. Either way, there's a lot to learn, so let's get right into it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another episode of $7 Trillion Ideas. Today is a very exciting episode because we have Jonathan Hira here with us today to talk to us a little bit more about gender lens investing, really thinking about creating impact in terms of gender equality through innovative financing. So welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Wonderful. So can you start off by telling us a little bit more about yourself? Sure. Um, So I am the founder and managing partner of a firm called Marigold Capital, which is based in Toronto. Um, My partner's name is Rosie and my two girls' names are Sophia and Nadette. And uh, we live in the West End of Toronto. I've been running Marigold for about a year, just over a year at this point. And um, we're set to launch an impact fund uh, using a gender lens, of course, um, in the fall. And I'm happy to tell you more about that as we, as we dive in. Um, and I've been an impact investor both in domestic markets as well as um, frontier and emerging markets uh, for nearly 10 years at this point. And I've been privileged to have worked with a few great organizations and people along the way, like um, Grand Challenges Canada, um, Royal Bank, of Canada's Generator Fund, uh, Serona Asset Management. And I've had a, prior to that, I've had some experience with microfinance as well. Um, so I'm really excited to be here um, and, and have this conversation with you. Great. So you started touching on this a little bit in terms of your background, but what inspired you to get involved with gender lens investing and why? Yeah, this one, you know what, um, I get asked that a lot as you can, you know, likely imagine. And to be honest, I don't think I had the greatest answer for a long time. I um, maybe it was serendipity, um, to a degree, um, you know, on reflection, uh, I've actually been using a gender lens in my investment work for a really long time before I was even really, um, calling it that. And I think that's a pretty cool thing to, to, to speak to, but, um, you know, when I'm trying to look back and connect all the dots of my personal and professional, um, development, um, I, I think there's a really strong personal connection to, to gender lens investing. I, my, my history is one of political science and learning a lot of languages and a lot of travel and all these wonderful things um, that are human-centric. Um, uh, and so that brought me to a lot of international development and community development work. And finance kind of slots into that really, really well, of course. And when you think about um, trying to support a lot of people, uh, you're naturally going to start thinking about supporting uh, women quite, quite, quite easily. And so this is the serendipity part uh, that I'm speaking to. Um, the personal side, I think, is really important as well to speak to, which is um, I was raised by a single mother who's an immigrant um, and saw her struggle, also saw all of the opportunity that she provided to me and, you know, trying to make the most of it. And um, I don't think it's a cliche, but it might sound that way that, you know, um, I'm trying to use my privilege as an ally as best as possible um, with, with finance as, as the, the main tool to do so. So I, I think... Uh, that's not the most inspiring answer, perhaps, but for me, it's a you know it's a very personal story 
um, connected with some some sort of obvious common sense uh, experiences that has led me to this point. No, that is very inspiring, actually. Um, you mentioned that finance kind of fit naturally within this international development picture, but to a lot of people, it seems like finance is a completely different world. So maybe, maybe can you touch a little bit more on that and how you see finance coming into the international development space? Yeah, and I'm going to use a, uh, an anecdote, uh, and hopefully the microcosm has um, some utility when thinking about the, the greater uh, macro um, question, because you're asking a really big question, and I don't think I'm necessarily super well suited to answer it, but I'll tell you through my experience how I kind of connected those dots. Um, I was working in Poland in um, maybe the really late 90s or very early 2000s. Um, in rural, rural Poland. And I was working on an agricultural development uh, initiative with uh, a really small NGO, um, doing some translation work, some grant work, alongside working with um, a population that was uh, former drug and alcohol um, abusers and ex-convicts. And they were learning some livelihoods um, skills through, um, through agriculture of course, um, on the path towards rehabilitation and integration with society. And so it was there that I discovered the, the potential power of microfinance, to be very honest. Um, you know, the work that we were doing as an NGO was, was great. Uh, we saw some true, true what I would deem true outcomes in, in terms of impact around the population. But they still needed to seek other financing from other sources, which is where the microfinance piece came in. And I thought, you know, um, that even more finance may be uh, a useful way to uh, develop a, a bit of a, a supply chain or value chain to this, this small farm that was connected to the small NGO to move greater people through this, through this pathway. I, you know, I didn't have that all put together super cleanly. Um, it's still maybe not that, that great, uh, even looking back. But to me, there was something that was missing. And... Uh, microfinance was that first first really big step to um, empowerment for for people, as well as uh, a step closer towards uh, sustainability. And so th those are the pieces that I started to um, pull on um, in my in my you know learning about how much more powerful international development could be. Right, and I think. This is kind of a realization that the international community has had recently, and recently I mean <clears throat> since 2015, where they realized that in order to actually achieve the goals we've set out, we really need to leverage finance. So that kind of leads into the next question, which is why do you think gender lens investing and impact investing is such a relevant topic right now, and why is it taking off at this time? Yeah. Uh... That's a good, good question. Um, I, I mean, another question would be, why did it take so long, um, to, to be honest? Um, I, I think that there are too many voices that are too loud, and there's too much data um, to ignore. Um, and, and, and we all are aware of who's been ignoring for so long. Um, and I just don't think you can, you can um, ignore any longer. And uh, I think that gender lens investing or, and there are a multitude of frames of, of gender 
uh, gender work or gender investing um, is the tip of the arrow um, of, of greater diversity and inclusion investing. And, and essentially, you know, we're talking about um, what must be a, a buzzword or a jargon word for many people, intersectionality. This is one, one layer or one lens um, among many when looking at a population. Um, and I think it's the, the, the right time for this one because um, it, it, the, the voices are loud enough, as I said, and I, I, the power is great enough with, with, um, with women um, in their hands that we have to act on it. Um, and that sounds maybe like a cynical perspective, um, and I'm really thinking about um, traditional capital markets, um, very traditional private um, market players who are who may have been reticent in the past. Um, I'm not talking about the great gender um, work that's been done within DFIs or within um, any multilateral organization performing um, international aid. Um, I'm really talking about how to move the needle and the time has come for um, them to finally act. Right, so when you say that um, women have finally kind of gotten the power, or you were kind of saying that women are finally realizing their power, is that like what you were trying to say? I think that I'm saying that women have finally started to realize their power. I am mm -hmm. saying that. I'm also saying and there's more work to be done as a, and this is me saying this as a white heterosexual male born in Canada. So, you know, discount all of that. Um, what do I really know? Um, but I'm also saying that there are enough women in traditional functions and industries and sectors who have made it their way, who've made their way to the um, positions of value and decision maker um, and who are trying to either um, pull others up alongside or, you know, act as, um, act as levers for others to come through. But the point is there's, there's enough um, power in their hands where um, whether they're actually trying to, to, to have that strong voice or whether they're just there and their numbers are increasing, they can't be ignored by the others, um, meaning mostly um, white men of power. Right. No, that makes a lot of sense. And I would definitely actually agree with that as a woman. <laughs> um, so kind of leading in from that, how do you think financing can be really transformative in terms of creating an impact for gender equality. You know, we have all of these new funds, all of these new players trying to tackle the gender lens investing space. So how do you think that beyond just some of the common indicators um, that this financing can actually be transformative in terms of making impact for gender equality? I, I think that's a really big question. Um, I think, uh, um, I'll give a couple of answers, um, and I'm not sure any of them are, are complete. Um, I think more financing, first and foremost, is just necessary. Um, you know, we, very simply, we know that access to capital is an issue. So we need more financing, um, for, for first and foremost. 
I think the transformative aspect, um, as opposed to just opening up the, the fire hydrant and letting more of the same come through, beyond just that, um, you know, changing, changing the type of financing, changing the process of how we finance, changing the finance and the process for whom we finance and for what we finance and perhaps why we finance uh, what we do, uh, to me, uh, those are the transformational aspects um, that can have this longitudinal um, impact. And that in this count of conversation, it's around gender equality, but we can also be talking about any of the intersectional um, qualities that we're after. So um, just really quickly, we could start, instead of having um, off-the-shelf products that we offer to everybody, no matter what business, what business model, what markets, what products and services, the length or sophistication of a supply chain or value chain, maybe we start tailoring everything dependent on um, an organization's needs. Some firms do that, but not, not all of the firms do that. Um, we could start thinking about um, terms within an agreement, of course, that um, represent the, the founder's best interests. Um, some firms offer financing like that, but many do not. Um, and again, that has nothing to do with gender. Um, of course, there are greater gender implications than, than not, but it need not be because we're doing so because of gender. It's just maybe the right thing to do for the entrepreneurs and the best relationship and the best outcomes financially and impact-wise. Um, those are, those are two big pieces there. Um, we could be thinking about um, changing, I mean, the, essentially we could talk about these, these very tactical pieces, but essentially the goal might be to change how finance is done by whom and for whom. Um, and it's probably a system that isn't working for that many people. And maybe I should have started there um, in the first place. And so whenever we, whenever we think about an investment process or a, um, a financing, we think about all the steps that go into making that, there are probably biases, good and bad, valued uh, too much or valued too little and so on and so forth that have gender implications. And so we can probably think about um, refining all of that. And if we're refining all of that, and I've just given you a few examples um, a moment ago, then we have a greater chance for, for gender equality. I think the, the punchline here is um, that we like to talk about at Marigold is uh, impact is is always material. So um, these things that formerly have been considered externalities when making investment decisions or financing decisions, that's you, you can't do that anymore. They have to literally be evaluated when cutting a deal. They have to be represented on, the, on your balance sheet and your, your P&L and so on and so forth. And we're only going to see that increase over time. Um, and this has really strong ramifications for the gender lens investing space in particular. Right, so going off of some of the things you were saying in that in terms of why we financing and how, um, how can we change who sits around the decision-making table of these types of investments to better include the voices of women and marginalized women and just different people who have traditionally not really been represented in finance. So I think uh, this is a this is a bigger question here, and I and I I'm glad you asked it. I think that we can be talking about a few different pieces of a of a puzzle here. Um, and I just mentioned a moment ago um, having everything be material. We can't necessarily externalize or throw away 
um, certain things that we don't have to value or to um, assess risk levels of and so on and so forth. Um, you know, we, we I, I assume everyone listening will, will understand that VC isn't necessarily working for everyone. And VCs like to use uh, pattern recognition heuristics. Um, and they often do that with selecting deals. And if you're starting to look for what worked before in terms of who you're backing, the entrepreneur, um, chances are you're looking for someone who looks like you, um, went to the same school, uh, the same types of degrees, um, and so on and so forth. Um, that may be not the most positive um, way to, to do things. Certainly not in terms of including uh, the diversity and strength of decision making. So, um, you know, this, this becomes a question around hiring, um, how to build a complementary team um, with diverse perspectives and skill sets and attributes and motivations that are nevertheless aligned uh, fairly well. You, when thinking about being a fund, a fund team, that's some of the stuff that you'd be thinking of. If you're thinking about putting together an advisory board, making sure that you actually have communities who would receive said funding or where entrepreneurs you're funding would uh, be working, having community representation makes a ton of sense, but we often don't see that on advisory boards or investment committees um, or within funders, but that's a, that's a no-brainer. And so if you're not actually thinking of having uh, marginalized people within your decision-making bodies, um, you're, you're kind of missing the boat. Um, we can be thinking about within the hiring practices, you can be thinking about certain incentive programs. Um, so not just hiring programs, but incentive programs so folks can um, get to decision-making uh, responsibility positions within firm, firms if they don't currently have them. Um, we often see um, a shadow system in place within many organizations where a 360 review isn't really fully transparent or 360. And you know, many firms will talk about how, how good or bad those, those processes are. Um, and of course there are biases there and the shadow systems might actually have more weight than the 360 reviews themselves. Um, I'm sure we're all aware about mentorship programs and how both men and women need to, need to consider mentorship um, roles um, for, for, for mentees. And I, the last thing that I'll make a uh, comment to is uh, education itself. Um, I teach a course at the Schulich School of Business, um, a second year MBA elective um, within the impact investing space. And the class is fairly diverse in terms of gender, um, but it's not so diverse when you start thinking about the backgrounds, both educational and experiential, of the um, students. And what I'm trying to say is most of the male students will um, be focused on finance, uh, many of them coming from engineering backgrounds. And many of the female students will be from international development, NGO, marketing backgrounds. Um, and this, this can be changed. I'm not sure exactly what the reason is here. Um, the interest in impact investing from everybody is absolutely there. But something about um, refining an education system um, to maybe you know, uh, increase the exposure of all students to 
to certain subjects might be really useful. So that might be a little bit off topic, but I wanted to sort of go down each step um, to state that um, we can be working on increasing who sits around the table um, many, many years um, before they actually get to that decision-making table and, and maybe in an exponential manner by actually working on some of those things. Okay, awesome. No, that was great detail. I like how you take us through your whole kind of thinking process with that. So the last question is a question that we ask all guests here on the podcast. So it's broadly, <laughs> what else needs to be done to close the funding gap for the SDGs? Right. <laughs> so if I thought some of the other questions were big questions, then this is a really big one. So <laughs> I'm, I'm glad you're asking me. Um, and um, hopefully I can add something to the mix of, of answers you're getting from other folks. Um, I think there are, there are a couple of things that I wanted to, um, to speak to here. One would be around uh, getting all players involved. Um, we saw some announcements from um, some DFIs uh, over the last 24 hours. Um, what's today, June 11th, um, around the the 2x um, support, which is which is great. So getting DFIs involved um, makes absolute sense, and having FinDev as the as the leader of this is is great to see. So having DFIs involved, um, having governments involved, both uh, Global Affairs Canada, of course, but um, also domestically getting involved in um, focusing on, on issues of gender. Fantastic. So we need um, Canada's leadership um, to spread across the world as well. So we have governments and we have DFIs, which are of course connected. Um, government incentives to, to bring along um, private sector investors. Um, we're seeing that of course through the Venture Capital Catalyst Initiative um, and other programs that we would have seen through the 2017 and 2018 budgets which are um, in incentivizing firms to, um, to align with government priorities. That's, that's also great. Um, we need to see more multinationals, of course, focus on diversity and inclusion in terms of hiring and training and mentoring. Um, focusing on you know, all of these things that we're talking about are, are quality of jobs, uh, not just any job. And so that needs to, needs to, to um, be fostered further. And I'm not sure that's necessarily through government incentives, but of course, um, uh, I, th I think the, the financial bottom line, um, the data is there that we, we can actually improve that by focusing on some, some of the social elements we're speaking to here. That's another way to focus on STGs as well. Um, and finally, my, my bias is believing in the power of innovation, um, funding, funding early things that can scale um, horizontally and vertically, um, exponentially, of course, to, to solve some longer-term issues, um, um, hopefully around the timing of the SDGs, of course, in 2030. Um, so again, further incenting uh, entrepreneurs to become more increasingly social entrepreneurs with, with uh, responsible procurement, of course, with hiring and training practices internal to the firm, with appropriate sales, marketing, distribution, um, downstream and being really conscious of who is buying um, the products that they're, they're selling. Um, I think those are all really important pieces. Um, and so uh, essentially what I'm talking about are a few maybe, maybe key levers. We're talking about increased infrastructure development for more players to 
uh, enable more finance to go through more players, that's private mostly, um, an increase in the, the level of policy work globally, using Canada as a, as a leader, um, an increased amount of advocacy coming from the grassroots as well as maybe top-down government um, to support some, some further initiatives, and this is not just not gender, um, but all of the SDGs, of course, to create a better enabling environment or environment to overall. Um, those are the few, the, 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 the big things that I really start to, to focus in on. Um, I mentioned earlier the, the comments about making everything material. So we know that accounting standards um, are going to be changing slowly um, to do exactly that, that um, firms are going to have to internalize certain things um, and account for them appropriately. Um, so emissions must be accounted for on the books as opposed to not considering the environmental ramifications of, of emissions, for example. Um, and that can also be applied to social or gender issues in, in particular. And so that can have a massive um, uh, play with, with supporting the, the SDGs um, goals of, of of achieving the SDGs. Um, the last thing that I want to maybe comment, which is maybe um, a smaller issue, but a, a really important one, is to increase the accountability and transparency um, of, of impact work. And this has been a, a nebulous sort of space. The coming up with indicators, proxy indicators, um, fairly easy to do, basic metrics, all of that is fairly easy to do, but the maybe the targeting, um, the attribution, the management, um, the me uh, maybe the measuring is easier to do, but the, certainly the targeting and the attribution effects and the management of, of the impact that we're trying to achieve with a, a longer term horizon has been rather difficult. So um, maybe that's a play where, where government and some um, corporate players could come together. I could see a role for foundations, of course, supporting the development of a much more robust system that can help um, all players come together to, to actually achieve some of these objectives and not just necessarily close the funding gap, but actually help us achieve that. Um, okay, wonderful. That was great. I loved all of the ideas you shared for that. So. That being said, we're now at the end of our podcast. So is so where can people find you and learn more about Marigold? Yeah, you can find us at marigold-capital.com, marigold-capital.com. Um, that would be the best spot. We have all of our blog posts there. Um, of course, we're, we're posting on LinkedIn as well, um, at Marigold Capital, but uh, our website is the best place to find us. Um, Please feel you know free to, to email us out or um, tweet or find us on LinkedIn. Um, and yeah, we'd love to hear from you. Okay, wonderful. So thanks everyone for tuning in and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. Thank you so much for tuning in to this episode of the $7 trillion ideas to save the world podcast. If you know someone who would love listening to this content, make sure to send it over to them so they too can learn about it. And together, let's change the world.